For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking in more detail about the movie that started it all. Hi, I'm Rob Hyard of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during Season 3, when instead I'm going to be going through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. For the record, I'm going to mostly try to avoid reviewing these movies, since many, many people have done it before me, but I imagine my opinions will creep in here and there because, you know, human. I thought for a bit about what order to do these in. Chronological order, other chronological order, machete order, or even an order of how much I like them. I settled on doing the numbered episodes chronologically by release year, since it's the least confusing and easiest to add to later on, when there will be other movies. Pretty soon, folks. I will get to Rogue One and Solo as well, but to be honest, this process has been taking me rather longer than I'd hoped, and I want to get all my thoughts about the saga films in order before episode 9 comes out. One more minor note. As I go through these movies, I will generally be skipping over stuff that I've talked about before, because you probably heard it, and we at Metaphors Be With You respect your time. So, here we are, looking at A New Hope, nay, Episode 4, nay, Star Wars. The first thing we see, even before the starfield with the opening crawl, are the words, A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is a strong stand-in for that old fairy tale standard, Long Ago and Far Away, which itself is just a variant of Once Upon a Time. I've always had an interest in these constructions, which I can confirm have equivalents in Arabic in The Thousand and One Nights, and would imagine have equivalents in every language on Earth. Distance in space or time or both are a marvelous device for explaining why things in the story are different than they are in the familiar world. Why were a bunch of fairies invited to the christening of this baby? That's just how things were done back then when we lived closer to the fairies. Why did he use Parsec to talk about how fast he made the Kessel run? That's how you have to describe a corner-cutting journey through a maze of black holes and inexplicable black hole-dwelling monsters. Uh, back then. So, now that we know we're in a fairy tale, the trumpets come in and the crawl fills up the screen, except for the vast starfield beyond. Not only are we in a fairy tale, it's the biggest, most cosmos-spanning fairy tale ever. And not only is it a fairy tale, there's an actual princess! Of course, we'll find out during the story that the princess is also a senator, because we're pretty freely mashing our influences together now. So if Leia is our fairy tale princess, does that make Luke our knight in shining armor? Not really, at least at first. I would say instead that Luke is a stand-in for the expected audience of children. The first time we see him in his home, he is literally playing with a Star Wars toy. A model of his T-16 Skyhopper, if you didn't know. He is also under the thumb of parental figures who make him do chores when he'd rather be playing with his friends. He is hashtag relatable to kids in a big way. And rather than become a knight in his own right, he'll remain a squire to Ben in this film. Put another way, if Ben is Batman, he'll be Robin, a character that was literally created to give kids someone to identify with. Filling out our core trio of heroes, we'll have the space cowboy slash long-haul trucker slash criminal with a heart of gold, Han Solo. I've talked before about how his costuming tells us a lot of what we need to know about him, and how Chewbacca is essentially an extension of him during the original trilogy. But an extra textual detail that just occurred to me is that Chewie's face was modeled after Lucas's dog, Indiana. And yes, that was an in-joke in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Giving Han his dog makes me wonder to what extent Lucas may have written Solo as a self-insert character, but there's no real way to answer that. I did want to talk a bit about the original Star Wars trio itself. This structure, a character representing a government or military, a character representing the Force, and a character representing the fringe in the criminal world, have become the core ingredients of a Star Wars ensemble. These are the three domains of the galaxy, and most long-form narratives wind up with rough equivalents to Leia, Luke, and Han to give access to stories from those domains. For some examples, on the cartoon Rebels, Hera and Chopper are military, Kanan and Ezra are the Force, and Sabine and Zeb are the Fringe. In the video game Knights of the Old Republic, Karth is military, Bastila is the Force, and Mission is the Fringe. 
Interestingly, in the first of Marvel's Darth Vader comics, Vader himself is both military and the Force, so the creative team only needed to add the wonderful Dr. Aphra, criminal archaeologist, to complete the set. Okay, back to the movie at hand. After the brief exterior shots of a gigantic slice of pie chasing a tiny hammerhead shark, we cut to the shark's interior to find a very white environment with robots in it. White and black soldiers wearing helmets burst in, have a firefight with ray guns, and are followed by a huge man in black armor. The white-armored soldiers capture a princess in a white dress, and an officer in a black uniform argues a bit with the guy in the black armor. What I'm getting at here is that our first impressions of this universe is that it is very high-tech and extremely black and white. The only hint of organic life is Leia herself, and the troops that apparently all died defending her. Star Wars seems to announce, look how space we are! And then we come down to Tatooine, which is all earth tones and giant skeletons. It's also populated by farmers and local tribes and lawmen riding lizard horses, and basically it's a western, but with robots and ray guns and dirty spaceships that clearly also double as home to their smuggler captains. Now, if you're my age or younger, this is just what Star Wars is. But if you're significantly older than me, I suspect it was quite a whiplash experience to go straight between these two environments. And that was before the cantina scene, which pretty famously knocked everyone's socks off. Cavalcade of aliens aside, it's a pretty great sequence, not least because Luke and company literally descend, down some stairs, into the underworld. Getting back to Darth Vader, it's interesting how much lower status he is than he seems. Obviously, he's the most memorable villain in the film. Indeed, among the most memorable villains in history. But he's not the primary villain of this piece at all. He gets sassed from multiple nameless Imperial jerk faces, and when he goes to punish one of said jerk faces with some very justified strangulation, Governor Tarkin snaps at him to release the guy. Because, as Leia observes, Tarkin is holding Vader's leash, because he's the actual villain here. I've always been kind of fascinated by Tarkin. No doubt, at least in part because of Peter Cushing's performance. It's also interesting that among all the cyborgs and giant slugs and evil wizards and masked bounty hunters, Tarkin's is basically the only truly human face of pure evil we see in any of the Lucas films. The Disney era will eventually give us General Hux and Director Krennic, but for a long time, Tarkin was it. And that human face of evil feels significant, because watching someone commit the atrocity of wiping out a peaceful planet without provocation or even warning, and have that person be well, a person, with no evil magic or alien mindset or whatever to explain it away, is chilling. I would argue, however, that it could be chilling her. The destruction of Alderaan basically works as Chekhov's super laser, establishing the threat for use later in the narrative. With Chekhov's more traditional gun, you just have to point out that a gun exists, because your audience probably knows what those are and what they do. With a planet-destroying super laser, you pretty much have to use it so we, the audience, can see that planet-destroying is not hyperbole. So the scene serves a very functional purpose, but I would argue that it leaves its emotional impact largely unexplored. I've complained before that Leia doesn't really get to mourn in this story, and is actually called on to comfort Luke. But it's not just her, even. Almost immediately after Alderaan is destroyed, there's a bit with R2 and Chewbacca playing space chess. Ben knows something has happened, but even he dismisses it in favor of getting back to Luke's story. Random aside about the Death Star, I was going to make a snarky comment about how the thing seems to be made of bottomless pits and narrow catwalks. But then it occurred to me that if you're building something the size of a moon, it actually makes a lot of sense that a bunch of it would be hollow space. So that checks out. Clever segue into Obi-Wan's death, it's interesting to me both that his body disappears and that this apparently confuses Vader. On the body disappearance, there are a number of religious analogs to the idea of disappearing from the world when you die, or instead of dying. Before I give the examples, let me say that I'm not any kind of religious scholar, and if I'm wrong about any of this, I would love to be corrected. The Catholic Church believes that Jesus' mother Mary was brought bodily into heaven, leaving nothing behind. There's also the idea of the rapture, spoken of in several strains of Christianity, when all the virtuous people are simultaneously brought into heaven. Outside of Christianity, Hinduism gives us nirvana, which is the way to escape the cycle of death and rebirth. I imagine there are other analogs, because the idea of not leaving a body behind has an obvious appeal. Dead bodies rot, and are sometimes diseased or injured, and the idea of being so pure as to never have any of that happen to you is a powerful image. 
And as I discussed in episode 6, there is a powerful link in Star Wars between bodily integrity and morality. So the fact that Obi-Wan's body will never rot or anything means that his morality will remain perfect and unassailable. It's also interesting that Vader is confused by the disappearance, because it confirms for us that Jedi don't always do that. The prequels will bear this out, but since Obi-Wan and Yoda both disappear in the original trilogy, I had long assumed that this was just standard Jedi operating procedure. One thing that I spotted on this watching that I'd missed my entire life is that the Death Star and TIE Fighters are eyeballs. Both have spherical shapes with an iris and even a pupil designed into them. So that made me wonder if the Empire has a thematic connection with vision or surveillance. Well, we do have a sequence in the detention area, where our heroes spend some time shooting out cameras, and Luke, of course, can't use the Force properly until he covers up his own eyes with the blast helmet, and a targeting computer is essentially a specialized eye that's getting in the way of Luke making his shot on the Death Star, a giant eyeball. And just to drive the point home a little further, the chatter among the rebel pilots in the big battle is full of references to sight. Pick up your visual scanning, from Red Leader. Biggs, close to panic, yelling, I can't see him! And even Luke admonishing his allies, when you pick one up, watch him! So that all seems to track. Vader's also the one Imperial who knows to send a scanning crew aboard the Falcon when the other Imperials are content to call it empty. Then he uses a sense other than sight to identify that Obi-Wan is here. So it seems like the Empire is surveillance while the rebels are watchfulness, but those who are connected to the Force know better than to rely on vision. Another thing that stuck out for me on this viewing was how extraordinarily alive the world of the film is. Obviously, places like the Cantina are the poster child for this, crammed full of interesting life forms to see. But the Death Star also has mouse droids running around which act enough like animals to be afraid of Chewbacca's roaring. There's also a weird octopus monster in the Death Star's trash compactor. Even the desert where 3PO is wandering alone is a huge skeleton in the background, suggesting more living things must be around, just out of frame. It's also worth noting that one of the biggest changes in the special edition of the film was the introduction to Mos Eisley, where Lucas added a bunch of additional vehicles and animals and droids going about their extremely animated lives. It's hard to tell if this is supposed to be meaningful, however, or if it's just Lucas's style as a filmmaker. He clearly wanted this movie to be different from the science fiction movies where everyone moves in spacesuits through a sparsely populated environment, but was there more to it than that? I'm inclined to think that this abundant life is a way of visualizing the Force. We haven't heard a whole lot about the Force yet, but Ben has told us that it's an energy field created by all living things. So on the surface, this is a movie about a vast empire being thwarted by a handful of upstarts. But I would argue that beneath that, it's a story about the Force and its perpetual motion, coalescing around a new champion who, at the climax of the story, finally gets out of his own way and acts according to its will. Something I'm going to be doing over the course of this rewatch is tracking the intertextual points and seeing how the movies connect, because intertextuality is my love language. Since this was the first movie, it obviously can't directly refer to any other movies, but it does give us some mostly misleading hints about the prequels. Lots of other people have observed that Ben's speech about Anakin doesn't really sound like he's talking about someone he met as a nine-year-old, so I'm going to gloss over that and just agree. I'm more interested in what this film implies about the Clone Wars and Anakin and Obi-Wan's participation in them. First of all, when Ben says about Uncle Owen, he didn't hold with her father's ideals, thought he should have stayed the hair and not gotten involved, that pretty clearly implies that Anakin had regular contact with Owen before the war. But it sure seems like they met exactly once, like a day or two before the Clone Wars started. I also find the reference to ideals confusing, since I can't think of a single moment in the prequels when we hear anyone on the Republic side talk about why they're fighting the war. The Separatists apparently declare that they're seceding and have built a droid army to make sure the Republic will listen. The Republic's opposing vision appears to be, nuh uh. We can infer some of the Separatist position based on what Palpatine tells us about how corrupt and broken the Senate is in The Phantom Menace, and some non movie material has expanded on that but there doesn't seem to be a Republic policy or philosophy they're pushing for anywhere near as much as they're pushing against the Separatists. So when Ben, presumably quoting or paraphrasing Owen, describes the Clone Wars as another damned fool idealistic crusade, I'm frankly lost. Textually, is Obi-Wan making this up on the fly? Or, more likely, is this a story he tells himself about the Clone Wars in the same way he tells himself that Anakin is dead to make himself feel better about failing his friend? 
Another oddity in Ben's speech here is that he claims to not have gone by the name of Obi-Wan since before Luke was born. Here, either A, Obi-Wan is lying, B, Obi-Wan has a lousy memory, or C, Obi-Wan is referring to like half an hour before Luke was born, when he maybe had come up with his half-ass plan to evade the Empire by changing his first name. <sighs> Moving on to Leia's plea for help, we have the bizarre claim that General Kenobi served her father in the Clone Wars. I guess this is technically true? in the sense that the Jedi served the Senate and Bail Organa was a senator, but I don't think any human being would ever phrase it this way if they'd seen the events of the prequels beforehand. This line is a great example, along with Ben talking about Anakin as if he wasn't a child when they met, of not technically incorrect, but wildly misleading. And when there are several of these, it makes me feel insecure in the world, like I can't trust the storytelling to play fair, you know? The one other line that jumps out at me as being substantially different after the prequels is Kenobi saying, You can't win, Doth. I'd always assumed, and I think Alec Guinness's performance confirms, that this is Obi-Wan being informal with someone he knows well, and using his first name. Once the Phantom Menace made it clear that Darth is a title, this line becomes Ben being extra formal with Vader, addressing him by his evil Sith title. And I'm done with that as a characterization thing, essentially Obi-Wan leaning into the idea that this is a Sith Lord that he needs to kill, not his friend and brother the Jedi. But I don't think that's what Guinness was trying to suggest in his acting there, which is disappointing. Okay, a fun side effect of messing with my usual format for this season is that I can do the traditional chipperish thing of talking about my favorite part. So I'll be doing that for each movie. My favorite part of A New Hope, if we don't count, you know, starting the whole 40-plus year saga, is a line that I think about all the time. It's when Luke has just successfully blocked the stun blast from the training remote and tells Ben that he could almost see the remote despite being blinded. That's good, Ben says. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I think about this often because it's essentially a proxy for the idea that this franchise is a world where anything can happen. A skull-faced samurai robot guy who is also a fighter pilot can be the scariest thing in the universe, and a shiny trash can on wheels can be a genuine hero. There can also be a moon-sized murder ball that only a beautiful princess knows how to destroy. And since we're apparently in on episode 4, there's an implicit promise that there's lots more to come. Oh, and my other favorite thing is that the original Banthas are played by an elephant named Margie in a costume. And if you don't see what's wonderful about that, you and I will never understand each other. That does it for this episode, but I'd love to know what you think. I'm at rhyrid on Twitter and a regular on Chipperish's Discord room, which you can access by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks for listening, and may the forest be with you. Mm -hmm.